Welcome to the Open Div Summit, four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live interactive events on Zoom. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and our summit speaker today is Chris Stedman. Chris Stedman is the author of Faithiest, and most recently, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. He was the founding director of the Yale Humanist Community and a fellow at Yale University. Chris also served as a humanist chaplain at Harvard University and currently teaches in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I spoke with him about unique challenges that LGBTQ people face in both religious and non-religious communities. I hope you enjoy. Chris, welcome to the Open Dib Project. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we spoke previously on, on my podcast about your new book, IRL, In Real Life, and you're also the author of Faithiest. And you've been kind of on my radar for a number of years. We've bumped into each other once briefly at Yale. And and now you are living in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's correct. And you're you're out there, you're part of a humanist UU, Universalist Unitarian. Is it do you call it a church or is it well, yeah. So yeah, I'm technically a member of a UU congregation there. They definitely don't use the word church. So what's interesting about First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis is they are, I believe, the oldest historically humanist UU congregation. So they have been a humanist UU congregation from the very beginning. Meaning if you go there on a Sunday, they call them platforms, not services. <laughs> Again, they're very intentional about their language. Mm -hmm. But if you go there on a Sunday, you know that you're not going to encounter a prayer during the platform. You're not going to you know, the songs that are sung are not going to make mention of, of God or anything like that. Very overtly non-theistic kind of community. Very welcoming of people who have a theistic point of view. And they make a lot of overt acknowledgments in their language that there are many people who attend who have different ways of seeing this. But, but yeah, they are very distinct in being explicitly non-theistic as a UU congregation. So I'm not a regular attendee. I mean, especially now in the pandemic, I'm not obviously <laughs> going, but I am a member and I have really enjoyed getting to know the community and learning from their example as this humanist congregation. I think they call themselves the birthplace of congregational humanism. And my favorite thing there, my brother and I every year, sadly, we didn't get to go this year because of the, this last year because of the pandemic, but they do a winter solstice celebration every year that mm. is super fun. And there's a dinner, there's like a sort of pageant that tends to be focused on the themes of darkness and light and on environmental stewardship and responsibility. And then they also sing, there's a point where, you know, you sing sort of holiday songs, except that with some of them, they've changed the lyrics. So like the Angels We Have Heard on High is changed into an anthem about solar power. It's very funny <laughs> and very cute. And I think they're a very unique example and they really stand out as being one of the, if not the longest running humanist 
community or congregation of sorts in the country. So I'm glad they're here and, and that I have the ability to participate in their community in various ways. Yeah, and that's a great example of a non-theistic congregation and how something like that might look and even some of the you know adapted rituals that still involve and kind of map onto the greater cycle of holiday seasons and you know everyone else is celebrating like you can celebrate as well sing songs but have this altered emphasis on it and even when you know you were talking about it, you could see you know there was a smile on your face. You know, it seems like it's something that's engaging for people. And yeah, yeah, my brother is an atheist, and I think when I invited him to come with me, he was a little skeptical because it sort of looks like a church. There's pews, you know, stuff like that. But he loves it, and yeah, it's been a really fun sort of special kind of tradition for him and I to go for the last you know four or five years. I was really sad to miss it this last year. And yeah, that congregation, they've been a big supporter of this project that I've been working on for the last few years now, working with a couple of researchers, sociologists at the University of Minnesota and UMass Boston to try to better understand the lives of the religiously unaffiliated, where they make meaning in their lives, what community even means to them, where they find a sense of community in their lives, in what ways they ritualize their lives. And so I'm excited for this conversation that we're going to have today, because that's something that after having worked as a humanist community builder for the better part of a decade, as a chaplain at Harvard and at Yale, serving humanist students, I sort of walked away from that feeling like this model, which I think works really well in the case of First Unitarian Society, which is let's look at a sort of religious model of community building and kind of secularize it or adapt it for a non-religious population. I think that model works really well for them. But I started to feel like a lot of the students I was working with over the years had really different needs when it came to meaning-making, when it came to finding a sense of community and identity than maybe some of their religious peers did. And the model of simply sort of mapping one-to-one, creating a kind of secular alternative that looks and feels really similar to a religious model isn't necessarily going to work for everybody. And my brother, I think, is a really interesting example of that because he enjoyed it when he was there, but he and I both, we don't go regularly on Sundays And I think he Mm -hmm. still has a a sort of sense that, you know, he'll listen, for example, to the messages that First Unitarian Society does on Sunday, like they upload them as a podcast and my brother will listen to the podcast. He's subscribed to their podcast, but he's not super interested in going on a Sunday morning Mm -hmm. and sitting in the pews and listening there. So, you know, I think that as much as those of us who are trying to work to support non-religious people as they search for meaning in their lives and try to make sense of the world around them. I think as much as we can look to religious models for good examples, we also have to be willing to look directly at the needs and maybe try to meet them in different ways. Yeah. Could you talk more about some of those needs that you saw and that weren't being met? Yeah. I mean, so now I teach in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Augsburg University, which is a Lutheran university here in Minneapolis. And because they're a historically Lutheran university, they have this religion requirement. So they require all students to take two religion classes. And all students have to take Religion 100, which is on vocation and the search for meaning, but it it takes a a very sort of Christian lens to that Mm. topic. And then students can either choose an elective or they take 200, which is vocation and the search for meaning too. Mm. And so a lot of students who are not religion majors and who are just sort of meeting their requirements will take 200, which is the course that I teach. 
And so it's mostly students who aren't super interested in the topic of religion. Some of them are religious, but many of them are sort of either, you know, sort of vaguely religious or not religious at all. They sort of fall into this category that demographers who study religious affiliation refer to as the kind of nothing in particulars. So mm -hmm. people who, when asked what they believe or what their religion is, that they don't really have anything in particular that they believe mm -hmm. in. And that population, so one thing I've learned from working with the sociologists over the last few years on survey design and just, you know, we did a sort of a survey of the existing research on the religiously unaffiliated. And one thing I learned is that people often talk about in the study of religion, the kind of sociological study of religion, they talk about how religiously unaffiliated people in the United States are less civically engaged than their religious peers. So mm -hmm. they vote less, they volunteer less. They're less likely to give money to charity, all these different ways. Putnam at Harvard, Robert Putnam talks about it as like neighborliness. They're sort of less neighborly, less involved in their communities as a whole. But one thing that I've learned from working with these sociologists is that if you sort of break out atheists and humanists and other folks from the nothing in particulars, because the religiously unaffiliated is a sort of broad catch-all category that includes atheists, humanists, and also these nothing in particulars. And if you break those out, those groups out, you'll see that atheists and humanists have the same levels of civic engagement as their religious peers, sometimes higher even. Mm -hmm. And it's the nothing in particulars that sort of bring down the average of the whole group of religiously unaffiliated people. So it's the nothing in particulars that are sort of just checked out in general. Right. And I they're think on, they're that, on YouTube right now or, or, or totally maybe, you know, you know. playing video games. Yeah. And I think they are a part of this sort of broader move that's happening culturally right now where people, especially younger people, are sort of checking out of the institutions that have historically helped us connect to others, make sense of our lives, whether they're religious institutions, political institutions, so on. You know, they feel that these institutions are not serving them anymore. And mm -hmm. so they're sort of checking out of them. But it's not as if the needs that we have historically met in those institutions have just evaporated. It's not as if people don't still have the need for meaning in their lives. They're just not being served by the institutions that are supposed to be serving them. And so this Religion 200 class I teach, I try to really use it as a space for these students who maybe aren't participating in these institutions that provide all kinds of opportunities for people to think about where they find meaning in their lives and to try and carve out this intentional time for them to do so. And, you know, what I'm finding, both in teaching this class and in the work I've been doing with these sociologists, and this, I think, ties into the LGBT focus of the conversation, mm -hmm. which I'm excited for us to talk more about, is that, like, for a lot of these individuals, they're turning to, you know, more sort of individualized ways of trying to find meaning in their lives. So it's not as if their need for meaning has just gone away. Instead, they're turning to things like astrology or tarot or online communities, places where they can still engage these kinds of questions, but in, in very different ways. And yeah. so you made this joke about YouTube, but it's true. Like for my brother, a huge way that he engages his atheism is by watching atheist videos on YouTube. You know, mm -hmm. he loves to watch debates between atheists and Christians and, you know, and it's, so it's, again, it's not as if this need to think about these kinds of questions, it's not as if he doesn't have that. It's just that this one way of doing it, this kind of congregational model just doesn't really connect with him. It doesn't yeah. meet him where he is. 
Whereas yeah. he can go online and he can find all kinds of ways to feel connected and engaged. And I'm not, you know, you know, because you've read IRL, I don't paint this sort of purely utopian vision of that. I think there are some real problems that arise as a result sure. of this more individualized and less sort of community-based way of navigating these questions. But I think the only way we can deal with those problems is by being honest about what's happening first. And I think many, many people are just sort of in denial about it. Even humanists who will say like, we have this great model of doing community mm. if only people knew about it. And mm. I don't think that actually the problem is a lack of awareness. It may be in some cases, but I actually think it's that that model of organizing community, organizing you know, how one finds meaning in their life just isn't resonating with younger generations. And I think the queer community is a great sort of way to begin to understand this because for a lot of queer people, especially in the realm of religion and spirituality, the institutional failures are very obvious. And mm -hmm. a lot of LGBT sure. people sort of checked out of religious institutions. Yeah, LGBT people are often ahead of the curve culturally. <laughs> and in terms of checking out of institutions, I think that LGBT people were a little ahead of the curve there. And so we can mm -hmm. look at how the LGBT community has been making meaning, I think, for some sense of where we're headed culturally around this yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, I was looking at uh, statistics from the Pew Research Center and, you know, kind of across the board and many traditional measures of religiosity, you know, LGBTQ adults are less religious. They believe in God, you know, less. They are, attend religious services. They don't attend weekly services or they're far less likely to say that, you know, the scripture is the word of God. And mm -hmm. I think there's obviously a complicated relationship there, one of 12 between specifically, you know, Christian demographic, you know, Christian congregations and the LGBT community of abuse and of trying to get exercise, you know, these aspects out of them in some cases, or really shunning people who fall into this demographic. And so yeah. I think that's almost like a stereotype of the way the church treats uh, people in the LGBTQ community. But it's not the whole truth. I want to ask you about something that you wrote in IRL about how your mother took you to a Lutheran minister. Could you speak a little bit about why she did that and what did it do for you and the positives that came out of that? Yeah, definitely. I do want to just real quick before I get into that, I do want to sort of circle back to something you said there that I think is super important, which is, you know, you were talking about the sort of the demographics of the LGBT community and being sort of less religious overall. And I think that there is this sense from many LGBT people of faith that, you know, a lot of that has to do with the sort of institutional failures, which I think is really, really true. Sometimes it can sort of spill over into this territory that often, again, is really well-meaning, I think, but, you know, we hear this same kind of thinking from sort of older people of faith who say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, young people, they, you know, they leave religion, but, you know, they come back when they get older. And and I think there's this idea that as these institutions become more LGBT inclusive, that LGBT people will come back to various religious denominations. But I do think it's worth looking at the fact that a lot of these respondents do say that they're actually not looking for a faith community. They're not really interested in one. And I'm just not sure that they will come back. And so on the one hand, for many LGBT people who have left a religious tradition, it is because they've had negative experiences. It is because of various you know, traumatic 
experiences they've had. And I think it's important, though I am not a person of faith, you know, I'm very supportive of LGBT people of faith. I'm very grateful that their voices exist. I think that they play a really important role for people who are growing up in their various religious denominations. I think that that kind of visibility is super important. And so I'm really glad that they're there, in part because one thing I remember being kind of earth-shattering when I learned was the Public Religion Research Institute. They published a report on millennials who have left their childhood religion. And they found that, you know, at least a third of those who did so did so at least in part because of anti-LGBT rhetoric or teachings within the tradition. Yeah. But what's super interesting about that is that actually like, so take the Catholic Church. I think if you were to ask most people, you know, if the Catholic Church is anti-LGBT, the answer would be yes, right? Mm -hmm. Because you think about who speaks for the Catholic tradition, it tends to be people in positions of leadership who take this more anti-LGBT kind of approach. And yet, PRRI also found that 75%, I think, of Catholics think that other Catholics disagree with same-sex marriage. They actually also found, PRRI found, that actually Catholics are more supportive of legal recognitions of same-sex relationships and legal protections for same-sex individuals than the general public. So what's wow. interesting is that among the Catholic, like in the pews, as they say, there's actually more support for LGBT people than in the general public among Catholics. And yet even other Catholics think that their fellow Catholics are anti-LGBT. And so some of it is really a perception issue, right? And so I think that that is important that there are voices within these spaces that are challenging that perception when it's inaccurate. But I also do think that a lot of these LGBT people have left their denominations for good. Like, I don't know that we're going to see this sort of mass return as the institutions become more LGBT affirming, which has generally been the trend, especially among mainline Christian denominations. And so, you know, yeah. I'm just, I don't know. But that being said, you know, it does make me think of the question you asked, because one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have LGBT people of faith speaking out and why I'm so supportive of those individuals is because, so I grew up non-religious, but I became an evangelical on my own when I was 11 for reasons that are probably too in-depth to get into here. But <laughs> but I, I converted into a community that was very sort of vehemently anti-LGBT and, and that demonized LGBT people frequently. Mm -hmm. And that really messed with me. I mean, I withdrew from the world around me. I spent, I was basically at war with myself over my sexual orientation as a queer person. Yeah. And my mom kind of watched this very outgoing, happy child become a shell of who he was and was sort of concerned about what was going on. I think at first she was really happy because my mom was working multiple jobs. And, you know, I think she was really happy I'd found this community that was a safe place for me to go to after school, this, this youth group I, I joined. But, you know, I think she noticed that something was amiss. And so she went snooping and she read my journal and she found that, you know, I'd written in this journal about this struggle I was having between my faith and my sexual orientation. Yeah. And so, you know, my mom went to the phone book because this was before we had the internet at home. <laughs> and uh, she called up churches in the community. And because we were in Minnesota, there are a lot of Lutheran churches there. And so mm -hmm. she ended up calling an ELCA Lutheran church. And she found an LGBT affirming minister there and took me to speak with him. Mm -hmm. And he did something really, really valuable for me, which was unlike the church I had converted into, 
he didn't tell me what to think, but he said, you know, this is much more complicated than what you've been told. And mm -hmm. he pointed me in the direction of resources so that I could sort of make up my own mind. He showed me that there was more than one way of being Christian and that rather than LGBT Christianity being this kind of impossibility, these things that were inherently sort of in conflict, he showed me, look, there are all these LGBT Christians out there. Like you, you will not be the first <laughs> if that's what you become, <laughs> you know? And so I ended up getting, there was this LGBT Christian like group that met once a week that I started going to. And it really, I really did need to see other LGBT Christians living their lives, showing me how, how it could be done. And, you know, my mom, you know, because she wasn't really a person of faith, you know, because we grew up non-religious, she didn't really know how to help me with what I was struggling with. But where I think a lot of parents in her position who were non-religious like her would have said, just leave that church, like just forget about Christianity. Like, obviously mm -hmm. this is not working, you know. She recognized that I needed somebody within the community who could help me sort of imagine another way of being Christian. And so I give her a lot of credit for that. And I'm really grateful for all those LGBT Christians that I met when I was sort of making my, you know, eventually I did sort of make my way back out of the church. But I think in order to really process everything that I had was sort of struggling with and make sense of it and come to terms with myself and my sexual orientation, I really needed those people and those spaces. And so, and I'm still in touch with many of them. And obviously I, you know, I have a real appreciation for people who are still doing that. I mean, my my boyfriend is an Episcopal and is going to be mm. an Episcopal priest. And, wow. you know, he's he's really passionate about LGBT people of faith having spaces where they can be fully affirmed. And, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. very supportive of that. I'm yeah. glad that that exists. Yeah, I, I'm curious, what does that look like? Like, what are theologies that affirm, you know, LGBTQ people of faith? What What is that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, this is not my area of expertise because I am not a person of faith. And so, you know, I think the best thing to do, and, and this was often what I would do as a chaplain when I was a humanist chaplain, a very, very common experience for me when working as a humanist chaplain, especially as a visibly queer humanist chaplain, is that students who had grown up in a faith tradition who were, you know, off at college for the first time on their own were beginning to sort of question some of what they had learned growing up or had space finally in their lives to kind of begin to be honest with themselves about their sexual orientation. And so just a lot of students who were in the thick of those kinds of struggles would come to me. And yeah, I tried to model what my mom did for me, which was not to say, well, like, just forget about that faith community. Like, you know, just come over and hang out with us humanists. Like, that was definitely not my approach. But often what I would do, you know, I think in order to do your job well, you have to be able to determine as a chaplain, and, you know, you can always facilitate a space for someone to ask questions and to sort of reflect back to them what you're hearing from them. But you also have to recognize when maybe you're not the best person. At, you know, when it gets to the point where you're not no longer the best sort of person in your own network to accompany mm -hmm. them through that. And so I would end up often being a kind of bridge to, you know, other people who maybe would be able to help them a little bit more. So if mm -hmm. I was working with a student who grew up Muslim and who was struggling with their sexual orientation and their faith, I could be an empathetic listener. I could mm -hmm. share a bit about my own sort of 
journey around faith and sexual orientation. But there are a lot of places where I just don't have the expertise, the personal experience, the theology. You know, I can't say, well, here from a Muslim perspective, here's how, like, here's another way of looking at that. And so I would often end up, you know, sort of being a, a conduit to somebody else who could, and vice versa, you know, I would I would get people who, you know, were coming to their chaplain within their various faith tradition with questions where ultimately that chaplain would start to feel like, you know, Chris might be able to offer them something that I can't. And so for me, I never celebrated when the outcome of someone coming to me with some struggle around their sexual orientation and their faith, if the outcome of that was them leaving their faith tradition, I never celebrated that like, oh, I got another one for humanism. Like that was never the sure, goal. Sure. The goal was always helping them find the place that they feel like they can be most themselves. And if that was in our community, then that's wonderful. And I'm glad they're here. But I, I would celebrate just as much if it ended up you know, in an outcome where they had reconciled themselves to their faith tradition and and felt like they could really be themselves in that tradition. So I realize yeah. that's not an answer to your question, but well, it's maybe. a sort of roundabout way of saying that I can only speak to, you know, the humanist perspective on sexuality, which is pretty straightforward, you know, and I'm happy to say more about that. But really, like for me, rather than trying to tell those students, well, here's like my perspective on what I think Christians can say about LGBT identities. You know, I'd rather just connect them to a trusted Christian source myself. Well, do you have any for for listeners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the best thing that you can do, this is something that I have found a lot of value in, is, you know, because I've been really involved in interfaith work over the years, and because I'm queer, you know, I follow a lot of LGBT people of faith online and get really different perspectives. And as much as there are really wonderful organizations doing great work, and I am happy to refer people to those organizations, actually find individuals to be them, to be much more helpful, especially when it comes to someone struggling with their faith and sexual orientation. Like for me, I really needed to talk to individuals. I needed to be able to talk to somebody who could share their own perspective on how they had sort of walked through that. And I actually think that you know, the fact that so many LGBT people have left religious institutions, I think a lot of LGBT people are, are having really profound one-on-one -on -one or sort of small group. You know, I think there are all these networks out there. And actually, and this is an important distinction, you know, there are a lot of LGBT people who have left religious traditions, but many of them would consider themselves, like some of them would consider themselves atheists and agnostic. And as you said, there are a higher number of atheists and agnostic folks among the LGBT population. But many of those people would also consider themselves very spiritual or, you know, would say that they do believe in a, a God or a higher power. And they're just sort of navigating those things outside of the boundaries of these kinds of traditional institutions. And yeah, so I mean, the thing I would always, I would suggest is find someone to talk to. I mean, I cannot tell you over the years how many, especially being very visibly queer in interfaith networks, how many individuals have reached out to me over the years just to have someone to talk to about, you know, the experience that they're going through 
And I always try to be as, you know, sort of responsive as I can. And ultimately, if it does reach a point where I'm no longer able to be that helpful, you know, then I'll sort of refer them to a friend if I know somebody who is, you know, willing and available. So, yeah, I do think especially and the LGBT community is often more decentralized, you know, there are LGBT organizations, but like if you look at the LGBT movement, you know, it's often a sort of person to person kind of network thing more so than it is building these kinds of structures. I mean, again, the human rights campaign, for example, exists, but like most LGBT people I know are much more a part of these kind of decentralized networks than they are a member of an organization like HRC. And I think with LGBT spirituality, that's particularly true. Would you hazard a guess, just in kind of closing here, as in, if those people that have left religious institutions are probably not coming back, is the future of how they find their spiritual meaning in these smaller groups and smaller communities? I think so, yeah. I think, and again, I think this reflects like a sort of broader cultural move that's happening where I think we're shifting away from a more institutional way of being in community, of finding identity, of making meaning in our lives, and more to these sort of networks. And again, much of that is happening online. But also we see like more and more in our communities, this sort of call to return to, you know, a sort of more local kind of economy to shop in your neighborhood. And I think some of that is a reaction against the failures of these giant institutions that were mm. supposed to make our lives better, but instead, you know, made us more atomized and separated us from our communities in some ways. And so, I mean, maybe I'm just being optimistic. Maybe I'm sort of projecting my own desires onto um, this, but I definitely hope that we see, you know, I think institutions can be really powerful in terms of retaining history, knowledge, but also, you know, a lot of that now is able to be sort of captured on and communicated and shared online. And so that function of the institution may no longer be necessary and it may enable us to take a more sort of intimate community-based sort of approach to these things rather than these large institutions. You know, I think churches, as they will continue to exist, and they will, you know, I don't think that they're going to just completely disappear, but I wouldn't be surprised, and now I'm just speculating baselessly, <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw much more like living room churches or online gatherings, these sort of more loose networks than the kind of mega churches of the last few decades. I think we're or, or maybe shifting very, away from that. Or maybe even, you know, completely moving away from Christianity or uh, kind of adopting, as you were saying, kind of astrology or tarot cards or more esoteric or mystical traditions, maybe even creating evolving new traditions and uh, yeah. theologies. Much more of that sort of DIY, build your own sort of spirituality. And I think that there's a lot about that that's really good. I do think, you know, and this is something I talk about in IRL, a lot of the sort of burden shifts to the individual with that approach. Whereas in an institution, you can sort of step in and there are all these sort of structures and rituals and stuff already in place that help you navigate these really big, hard questions. The DIY approach puts a lot more responsibility on the individual, and that can be overwhelming sometimes. But you know, if you're a part of a loose network that also is sort of interested in engaging those same kinds of questions, maybe that helps alleviate some of the responsibility on the individual. I don't know. But I do think that, again, there's a lot to be learned from how 
the queer community in particular made space for people who were rejected by institutions that failed them, whether that's churches or families um, of origin. And, you know, responded by saying, we're going to sort of take responsibility for our own family. So, you know, there's this idea of chosen family. I'm going to sort of build my own family if these institutions have sort of failed me. And, you know, I think that that the agency that people feel when they have the ability to sort of choose for themselves is probably, I mean, it's also, we're still in it. It's happening right now. So it's kind of hard to say, but I think that the agency is a worthy trade-off for the, I think it's worth the struggle and difficulty that we experience around, you know, having to sort of take more responsibility for our own. If it means that people have the, the freedom and the agency to sort of decide for themselves what's working, I think it's worth the trade. I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll see as uh, the years uh, unfold. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure talking with you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.